What would you do if you could do anything? Welcome to The Purpose Effect. I'm Elena. Join me for weekly conversations on purpose with women who have found it and are impacting their worlds with it. So a lot of it has to do with the buy-in and top leadership. To be honest with you, if they say yes, if the president or prime minister of your country says yes, if the CEO says yes, it will happen. So the question is, do they buy into this or not? They are who you need to target. I, I know we, even myself, I, I run a women empowering platform, but to be perfectly honest with you, the conversation needs to happen with the men. Izana Saleh is a co-founder of the global NGO Project Girls for Girls, which aims to give young women the courage, vision, and skills needed to take on public leadership. She also leads the organization's Malaysian chapter. We talk about how achieving complete gender equity in leadership means rethinking most of the structures, whether they be cultural, institutional, or political, that we currently have in place. These were designed for a different culture and a different time, and nothing has made this more apparent than COVID-19, lockdowns, and a changing world of work. We also talk about how, in order to achieve lasting change, these conversations need to include those currently at the top, men. But to kick things off, we talk about how the global movement Project Girls for Girls was born. To be honest with you, it was a, it was a conversation had over a cup of coffee. So we were a group of girlfriends in between classes having coffee or lunch. And one of our girlfriends, uh, the co-founder from Mexico, Carolina, she asked around the table, she's like, hey, so what are some of the issues that the women in your country are going through? Uh, the theme on the table was that we had issues with female leadership representation. Um, Malaysia, huge political gap um, in Iceland where it's, they're very strong politically, but they're not as strong when it came to corporate environment, C-suite level and all that. And of course, all other countries in between, right? Um, and when you're sitting with like-minded women, it doesn't take very long for a uh, just a normal conversation of a lunch to turn into action. Um, you know, the saying that, uh, you know, you are the average of the five people you are with. And at that table, there were nine of us and all very... Um, very much go-getter type of girls. Um, we were we, One thing led to the other, and I left that conversation uh, realizing that, okay, I think we're start, starting something quite big here, uh, which was really nice um, to bounce off each other and have the same mission and purpose. We were all extremely passionate about improving the quality of gender equality conversation and results in our respective countries, but not just for our own women, but to make it a global conversation and network as well. So um, we decided to pool our resources and what were they? Um, access to content from the school we were in, our own personal experiences, our own networks back home. And we built the base materials when we were together, but uh, and we launched the program at Harvard Kennedy School itself. So it's born out of uh, Harvard. It's not exactly a Harvard, uh, you know, it's not a subsidiary of the Kennedy School anything, but we're all grads from there. We all have fellowships and um, we launched the program there under the advisory of one of our deans. And when we graduated, we left back to our, our own countries and we uh, started the program 
start it small. You know, you start small, you move fast, and you think big, right? And um, so we started in our own respective countries at our own time because when you're moving back from a milestone moment, it takes a bit of time, obviously, to settle in. Uh, those of us who needed to look for our jobs started our jobs. So we started at different times. The first country to hit the ground running was Uganda. Okay. Alan, our co-founder then. So uh, we learned from each other. We had bi-weekly meetings. <clears throat> Thank God for technology, right? And um, so we, it was very startup vibe for the first few years. But um, since last year, what we did was uh, we sort of tightened things up a little bit. And from a co-founder's position, I conducted a lab, sort of like a workshop online through multiple time zones across many countries so that we can bring a bit more of a structure to our work. So from 2017, very startup vibe very organic. From last year, we put in a bit more structure. I took over the role of president CEO for the global entity. Um, and so we're, we're putting in a lot more structure this year. And it's been great. Right now, we're running in 22 countries. We've got a ton of leaders who lead the organization. It's, it's shared leadership, right? I may hold the name. Uh, that's just because I'm pushing for us to meet certain goals. But we are... Uh, a team of shared leadership and we support and empower each other. Uh, and in fact, that's actually the, the secret sauce to how it goes. Uh, we build each other up instead of, um, trying to make it for ourselves. And are all of the, um, the leaders of Project Girls for Girls in the various countries, which are part of the program, are they all women? Yes. So we we have had requests and also um, uh, suggestions from men. How can they support? But we uh, we don't we don't reject it. We don't deny it. Where they can help, they can help. But a lot of the mentorship that happens, um, the mentors are women and the mentees are women. And the reason is because uh, we strive on relatability. Can you connect to the issues? I mean, a man cannot connect to the discrimination a woman ha uh, a woman goes through because of gender, right? Uh, but he can provide network. So we're not going to say no to that. Um, so we have mentors who have experienced um, their fair share, uh, share their golden nuggets of wisdom with young girls um, and, and sort of provide a helping hand through this journey because all of us when when we do our research we we know a lot of contemporaries who say oh my gosh i wish i had a proper mentoring structure i wish i had mentors who really cared for my growth um and then we hope to to plug that that issue because elena there's three reasons why young girls young women don't stand up for uh, leadership positions and this is regardless of industries or sectors number one is a confidence issue they feel like they're not confident enough. Plenty of research shows that women, even if they qualify nine out of 10 of the criteria, compared against men, 
who maybe uh, comply six out of ten of the criteria, the man will raise his hand and the woman wouldn't. There's actual research on this. Number two, uh, women feel like they don't have the uh, technical capabilities. So how to negotiate salary? Majority of women don't negotiate salary. You know, 70 to 80 percent data shows. Um, and the third is women don't feel like they have the support system, whether it's from family or partners or people you surround yourself with. If you don't hear a positive feedback, um, you are likely not to continue. I think the data shows about 63 or 64%. So in Project Girls for Girls, we hope to plug those three holes by positive reinforcement and um, uh, we provide technical uh, skills and also a very supportive group of um, cheerleaders almost. Uh, we hope that our young girls will rise to the occasion, raise their hand and go for that promotion or that job or that public sector position. In fact, actually, before our call, um, I got a message from one of the girls who graduated from our cohort in September, and she's just been appointed to local council in her state. Oh, that's great. After that program. So she found the courage to do it, and that was her commitment to us, and she, was, she just messaged me to say, hey, I got it. She sent me the letter of appointment, and I was so delighted to hear that. Oh, that's so great. It's it's really important to have strong female leadership in local government, right? Because it's also a representation issue. The more female leaders that we see in government across all sectors, then the more likely we are to pursue that for ourselves. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Um, so can you tell me more? More about some of the initiatives that Project Girls for Girls is running here in Malaysia and also what sorts of female demographics you're targeting? Sure. So we have three pillars to Project Girls for Girls. The first is the mentorship that I was referring to. So we do mentorship programs within universities. Uh, we also partner with NGOs. And lately, we are getting into partnerships with corporations who have seen the value of our work uh, and do follow us, follow our progress a bit online. Uh, second pillar is called inspiration and learning. So we do a lot of conversations, not just in Malaysia, but also globally. And again, thanks to technology, um, people who are part of our network have access to fireside chats happening in Uganda, in Iceland, in Mexico, in the US. To be honest with you, the only downfall about tech life is just a time zone thing because, you know, there's no more boundaries. It's no longer nine to five. Uh, and in my house, we have several generations living here, and you can tell the younger ones we work across time zones. Like I could, it could be three in the morning, and I'm listening to a chat. A lot of it is we're we're not not for profit organization, Elena. So you know, you just have to be part of the network uh, to enjoy the the benefits of uh, thought provoking conversations and motivation and you know some of these women let me tell you especially from the african region when you listen to them and you watch their body language you get motivated the energy is so strong it's coming through my screen it's amazing but it's amazing you listen to them you listen to their struggle um and maybe you know maybe it's imposter syndrome maybe they they were uh girl child brides which happens a lot and how did they come out from all of the obstacles they've been through and you leave the conversation thinking wow if she can do it so can i and 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 that's our goal so that's the second pillar the inspiration and learning and the third is network uh we are a, 
what we strive to be, a global network. Um, so you have access to women, leaders, friends um, in your country, but also overseas as well. Uh, we are building structures around it, but right now it's through Facebook, WhatsApp, um, and very easy. Our ethos in our group is, um, you know, women empowering women, uh, inspiring girls to lead. So we're not stingy with uh, our contacts. So people who come in, they get all sorts of access. And, and those things are hard to come by. So in a network, it's important in career building, right? So what kind of demographic uh, of women are you targeting with Girls for Girls here in Malaysia? Is it mainly younger women starting out on their careers? So in Malaysia, the uh, mentees, what we started with, but it's changing a little bit now. We started with university level, so your the last two years before graduation. Um, and the mentors are women, I would say, mid-career, between 30s and early 40s. Uh, we try to get women who are highly relatable, so not too far of an age gap. They still remember the trials and tribulations they went through, how shy they were to negotiate, um, because that conversation is important to say, I understand, I did that too. And let me tell you how to get out of it. You know, that's the kind of conversations our mentors and mentees have. Um, but that is in Malaysia. And, and as I said, we're getting a bit more interest in a slightly older generation. So so we're, we're doing our homework there to intensify the conversation as well. Um, however, that is not necessarily the same in other countries. Uh, we have, in Africa, it's a little bit younger because uh, they try to cultivate a stronger mindset at a younger age. Um, so, so what we do is we leave it to the country heads to identify who is the target uh, market right. to start with. I think those conversations you were talking about between um, sort of mid-career mentors and younger mentees are, are really important. I think it's very important for women to support each other professionally. That hasn't always been the case. There was a mindset, I guess, when I was starting out in my career, um, particularly among the mid-career women or the older women, that there was limited space at the top and that younger women were potentially competition. I do think that's changing now, though. I really feel that women in general are much more supportive of each other professionally. And I think it's wonderful to see an environment that really encourages that and more networks. Yeah. Um, so G4G, we cater to mentors and mentees from multiple sectors, right? So it's not just corporate. We have political women. We have women from NGOs, etc. Um, so I would agree with you when it comes to the corporate environment. There's definitely a lot more um, support there. But I don't see that in a political environment here in Malaysia. So there's still a lot of work to be done in the political environment. That's definitely that's the case. Yeah, and and the thing is in Malaysia, uh, that's that's where we are lacking um, female leadership in the political environment, right? Whether it's cabinet or parliament, um, and so I'm hopeful. Uh, we take it one step at a time. I was um, reading an interview, a previous interview with you, and you said that our generation needs to redefine what it means to be an empowered Asian woman. What does that mean to you, an empowered Asian woman? 
you know, <laughs> that's uh, that's really interesting because I come from a home that's highly empowering. Uh, so I'm really grateful um, to my parents and my siblings for that. Um, I never understood what obstacles meant um, in, uh, when it comes to gender. I have two older brothers who were highly encouraging of me pursuing my best potential and same with my father. So, so I, I just want to shout out to them for always being a great support system. But what do I mean by being an empowered Asian woman? Um, I think it's really important that today in 2021, we live our best life and we are always in pursuit of our fullest potential and that we're not bound by generational and cultural obstacles. Uh, in Asia, and I'm sure you know this, <clears throat> there's a lot of um, deference given. Uh, it's in it's in our culture and you know if you've if you have not had exposure to anywhere else, that that is how we function. Uh, and in fact, for a huge part of my life, I and it was only until I was told by one of my bosses, I've always had a high sense of deference. And sometimes if that's not carefully managed, uh, because it's highly cultural, culture is so much more difficult to change than systemic obstacles, right? Yeah. Um, if, if you don't know how to treat that properly, it can inhibit uh, you from achieving your full potential because uh, the very essence of deference is you are always giving way to someone or something else um, and and the opposite of deference can be seen as selfish in this environment so I hope that young women in Asia and, and I do see this definitely uh, my generation and also definitely with the younger ones uh, that we redefine what it means to be an Asian woman uh, that we still embody a lot of the um, uh, unique Asian culture. You know, we are. I, I don't want to. I don't want to build in the stereotypes. Yeah, I think I will. I will leave it for our understanding. But still, still embody what it means to be an Asian woman, but um, also push ourselves to our fullest potential, meeting um, our purpose in life. Uh, and 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 I hope and from our exercises and mentorship circles and trainings with young Asian women, a lot of the issue is culture because it's embedded in their minds. How do you get out of it? Uh, it's it's a little bit tough for them, so it takes a bit of time. Do you think there's a way to harness some of those sort of? cultural issues positively you know yes deference is very much a part of asian culture but there is you know being deferential also perhaps means that you're better able to listen better able to listen to multiple perspectives or at least take them on board without criticizing or um, pushing an agenda up front and i think that can actually be very valuable in leadership you know this sort of traditional masculine leadership that we're much more familiar with is, you know, can be quite aggressive and quite um, focused on pus pushing a certain agenda forward. And I think actually um, we've seen, particularly in the last year and particularly in some of the COVID responses by female-led governments, that actually a more community-focused um, approach that takes on board the considerations of all members in the community has had a, a strong impact in managing, you know, the pandemic crisis in those countries. Absolutely. I'd agree with you 100%. 
Um, two key things that I picked up from what you said. Number one is that uh, sometimes quiet leadership or feminine leadership or empathetic leadership is what we need. And especially in a post-pandemic world where the world is ha has hurt so badly economically uh, and also mentally, empathetic leadership is what we need uh, to heal and move forward. That's, that's number one. And that's something that's of uh, second nature to most, not all, most women. Um, and also, in fact, actually in Girls for Girls, one of our modules is called Courageous Leadership. And uh, what we strive to emphasize in those programs, especially through our speakers, we bring in many different types of leadership. So we're saying you don't have to be a fist-thumping, loud uh, leader um, to be accepted and to be at the forefront of change. Uh, you just actually have to be yourself. Um, and so we do bring in a lot of exemplary speakers who demonstrate exactly what you've just said. Um, and also going back to how to how to unpack the positive side of deference, I think uh, you hit the nail on the head. The thing about what is emphasized in the culture is not the positive side of deference, right? Um, uh, in fact, I remember the feedback that uh, when I was first given about my sense of deference was in a complete negative sense. Um, my boss did not sort of unpack the positive side. And as a young girl, you know, you've, you're lambasted by such feedback and you're thinking, oh, maybe this is wrong. So a mentor who's able to see the other side of the coin should be able to say, okay, this is good. This is when you use that skill, but in other situations, you use another skill. And that's what our mentors do with our girls because they are highly confident and successful women, uh, Asian women who understand, okay, how do we maximize your full potential? If you are a, a strong, uh, outspoken Young woman, let's let's utilize that. If you are a very uh, quiet, reserved, but a great worker, you get things done. How do we utilize that skill as well? Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, playing to our strengths, I guess, Absolutely. is one of the best ways to um, empower our teams and get the best work out of people. So, in talking about leadership and and teams, particularly in the corporate sector, we know that companies with more women in their senior leadership teams perform better, not just financially, but also in terms of some of the softer measurements like employee well-being, uh, customer satisfaction. But for many organizations that haven't traditionally had diverse leadership, this isn't a quick fix. And have you seen any policies in place, particularly in the private sector, but maybe also in the public sector, that are really improving female representation at the top? either here in Malaysia or throughout your Girls for Girls uh, network globally? Sure. In Malaysia, um, about 10 or 11 years ago, there was a uh, target suggested, a 30% target by the Minister of Women at that time. Um, and it was good at that time because it introduced the conversation and actually having a target to move towards. Um, now, we're in 2021. Unfortunately, that conversation still remains as a target and at 30%. So we see a lot of people in our generation now pushing the conversation forward. We're saying 
Firstly, it shouldn't be a target. It should be a KPI that needs to be met because there is sufficient research out there uh, that uh, to show that diversity and inclusion is great for the nation, is great for the organization, it's great for the community. So it should be a KPI that needs to be met, number one. Number two, uh, this is a recent conversation. I know I've been pushing this since last year. I know a lot of contemporaries are pushing the same conversation, and that is we are looking at 50%. 30% was fine a decade ago when it was so new and you kind of, you're kind of like creeping around seeing if there's going to be any lashback to suggesting that. And, and we've tested the waters enough. We need to push the conversation to 50% because that is actually equality, both in actual percentage and also representation of the population. I think in 20, 2018, 2017, around that time, there was a policy to name and shame. So what the government did at that time was name and shame certain uh, public listed companies who did not meet the 30% okay. um, target. And How I, did that work? Uh, that was actually quite effective. Uh, okay. pe people move really fast when uh, you don't want to be named and shamed by government. And at that time, it was the prime minister who produced the list and said, okay, these are the people who are not meeting um, and an overseas example that I thought was really good was um, in Rwanda, if I'm not mistaken. Their parliament made up of 80% of women, um, 87, something like that. Uh, and, and I remember when I was asking around, I said, how did that happen? Uh, apparently, it's because the country's leader himself said uh, there, there were no ifs, ends or buts about it. said, nope. We have a lot of good women. I want to see them up there now. So a lot of it has to do with the buy-in and top leadership. To be honest with you, if they say yes, if the president or prime minister of your country says yes, if the CEO says yes, it will happen. So the question is, do they buy into this or not? They are who you need to target. I, I know we, even myself, I, I run a women empowering platform. But to be perfectly honest with you, the conversation needs to happen with the men. Yes. Yes, I completely agree with that. So then let's for a minute address the, the flip side of the conversation, the conversation with those people who don't buy in, because a common criticism of um, any programs designed to increase representation for women, but not just women, maybe other minorities at the top, is often met with the criticism that you're not promoting the best candidate to the top. You're promoting people specifically because they meet diversity and inclusion targets. So what would you say to that criticism? Which I don't believe, by the way. First of all, it's good for everybody. The more we move towards equal representation in all sectors of the of society, the more people benefit. So even if that means if you've got two candidates that are equally qualified for a job and you you accelerate one based on a diversity and inclusion initiative, the overall impact of that is probably going to be better because it's not that just that one person. It's all of the other people who see that and realize there's a space for them too. Absolutely. So I'd, I'd share two, two thoughts with you on that. Number one is that no transition is perfect, right? So um, 
it's a mixture of trying to figure out the process, whether in your country or in your government, how do you get that pipeline of women? How do you change the culture so women don't feel the need that they should um, they should uh, take a step back from their work because it's their cultural responsibility, but instead uh, rise to the promotion that's available, right? So, so it will be. It's not a. It's not a straight. Um, a straight graph um, upward. So those who say that um, you know we're not we're not taking the the best candidate for the job. There are far better people out there, etc. They're they're not looking at the problem in the right way. That's my um, my two cents. Because it is a constant uh, progression, fixing the policies, getting more women into the pipeline, getting them interested, getting men to understand that they also have to now take uh, do their share as partners at home, right? Because you need to release the woman of this this uh, double burden syndrome of work and home uh, at the same time, um, and the more <clears throat> organizations and uh, uh, governments look at it, the better our process and systems, and also candidates will be. Uh, so, for all you know, women uh, who are highly qualified but had to take a step back to take care of the kids, uh, they, they need a lot of support to come back. And the responsibility is ours. Not not ours is in the two women in this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> but ours is in an organization. Ours is in leaders making policies. Yeah, because it's a complete waste of, uh, of expertise, isn't it? Mm-hmm. If you have um, highly qualified or highly talented women who are leaving the workforce, never returning um, because their infrastructure that's in place doesn't support them. It's, it makes zero economic or social sense. Absolutely. Imagine if you run an organization, you have 100 people, but you don't use uh, the strength of the 50 people there. Right? You stay there, you just sit and maybe, you know, sweep the kitchen once in a while, but the rest of you, the 50 of you, you need to raise our company. That makes no sense. Your HR will tell you you're not utilizing your people well. So it's the same as running a country. It's got to, you've got to look at this from a human resource perspective. So you mentioned the double burden earlier, and certainly uh, here in Asia, um, women, well, globally, but it's it's. Uh, culturally, I think also enforced here in Asia and Malaysia, that um, women take on more of the burden of unpaid work and care in the home. And I think the pandemic has brought this even more sharply into focus because women not only needed to work their paid jobs from home, they were also taking on the um, uh, a higher share of the burden of any caregiving they needed to do at home, as well as uh, any additional home labor that they need to do. Where can we do better here, here in Malaysia particularly? Um, so I would, I would take one technical approach, which is our policies and all of that. Another is more the non-technical approach. From, from a technical approach, the government needs to look... I mean, the world is no longer the same, right? Many organizations, majority of organizations are now allowing uh, and encouraging work from home. It's uh, better for their overheads. Um, it's more flexible for a lot of people. Um, and so how um, how is the government looking at childcare policies? Are we going to encourage more 
for support from the gig economy players. Uh, in Malaysia, there's this entity called KidoCare, run by two amazing women. I don't know if you know them, uh, Nadira and Mohaini. Um, they've, they've done an amazing job at filling a gap of uh, providing verified, like uh, they do proper background checks and everything, um, babysitters to home. And, and that's been an issue before. It used to be just by word of mouth. Um, but now through uh, people like Kido Care, they do proper vetting through process, uh, police checks, things like that. So it's amazing. Um, so will government, if they cannot resolve the issue, will they, uh, will they invest in more gig economy players who can support uh, parents at home, right? So that's from a policy government side. But from a non-technical side, how do we change the culture? There's there's two generations to look at. One would be the parents themselves, who's managing the home, the the dad and mom, the man and woman, uh, or any variations of partnership. Um, what happens is what I've seen at least, and I you have to give credit where credit is due. I've seen a lot of men actually realizing the double burden syndrome their partners go through, because you're all at home whether it is the your online schooling for your three to four kids and then caring for a parent who is not well, cooking, laundry, cleaning, your own work, all at all by that one partner at home, of course that woman would be burnt out. Of course they would be exhausted. And so when the partner sees this, um, if they didn't know before, they should know now. But that's for those who have the ability to realize. For those who don't, and this would be a lot of, uh, also including a lot of the older generation, is how do you, how do you move the needle when it comes to cultural change? Uh, enablers of patriarchy are not only men, but it's sometimes women as well who insist on uh, older, uh, older, no longer relevant culture. Uh, applied onto women of this generation. The responsibilities are different, the stress level is different. And so it it is hopeful that with a bit of courage, uh, people are able to speak up and say, look, um, previous home living models no longer work. No. And also they're not financially viable. I mean, no. this is this is something that uh, it's certainly a comment that I've had levied at me, you know, surely you should want to stay home and raise your children. There's no better person to do that than their mother. Well, I mean, there's a financial implication to that. First of all, we're no longer living in a society where most families can manage on a single income. Mm -hmm. And secondly, for the world that my children, I have two boys, for the, the world that they're moving into, surely it's better for them to see their mother working Absolutely. to support their family as well. Um, but I feel very sad when I hear that that kind of comment is still, still around. prevalent, you know, uh, yeah. because because building a family is not a sperm donation program, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, why why is the onus only on the woman? What are you a robot? Good God, no! You have you have your limitations as well, and there's two of you who who are part who who decided to build a family together. So I think it's really unfair. I know a lot of women are actually those who make those comments to other women, and uh, you know, you you can't judge someone else for the limitations they have. Uh, everyone's got a different case to manage. 
Yeah. And I also think that somewhere along the way, this message to young women and girls that you can do anything and you can be anything somehow became, you have to do everything and you must be everything. And I agree with what you said about how the pandemic has showed the people who perhaps didn't see how much work the double burden creates, how tough it is when you're trying to do everything, work, teach, and live at home. And I do think that this has tipped the balance of the home labor in some situations. You're also on the board of Talent Corp Malaysia, and you've been involved in the Career Comeback Program. I think there needs to be an increasing recognition among employers that when you've taken a break to become a parent or to raise a family, this actually teaches you skills that are valuable in the workplace. It's not just sort of dead time. You know, negotiation skills, for example. There's no one more difficult to negotiate with than a two-year-old. <laughs> so I hear it, so I hear. Or, or being able to de-escalate situations. And I think when you have a lot of plates spinning in the air, you become really efficient with your time. You know, it's interesting. I think about a year ago, I sat down with a girlfriend who was uh, in exactly that career comeback uh position. She's highly educated. I think the world of her skills, um, very great at PR and sales and marketing. Uh, but because she took a step back for about two and a half years, um, or maybe three, I'm not sure, to raise her first child, she, of course, um, sat down with a CV and maybe felt a little bit apprehensive about her skills. And so, but because over lunch we said, okay, let's relook at your skills. What did you do during this time? How do you position it as a value add to the company? So exactly those things you said just now, Elena, multitasking skills, being able to still, you know, she ran a small business at home, uh, sourcing clothes, lo uh, logistics, management. It's all about how you position yourself, right? Um, and, and there's a lot of different entities now that help people uh, manage your resumes, whether you're an intern or whether your career come back. Uh, one resource that I would really encourage is uh, this not-for-profit called One Step Closer. Uh, they help people find jobs by refining their CVs and things like that. And it's always about pos positioning yourself um, and your skills as a value add to your future employers. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I'll have to um, check that out. So you've spoken about how important it is to have great people on your team and how important that is to any leader in any organization. What are some of the key characteristics that you're looking for in your own team? So it's funny you say that. I'm in the middle of recruitment uh, phase these two months. Um, the big thing I look for is uh, attitude. Because I have dealt with some young women who do not have the skills, but they had the best attitude. And in fact, most of the girls in our teams, the young ones are like that. And my God, firstly, they learn, they absorb like a sponge. They learn so fast. They can ramp things up like, you know, in a snap. And I love working with people like that. But on top of it, they have amazing attitude. So, of course, through work, you become friends, right? And uh, there's this test. Um, consultants like to talk about this, the airport test, which is um, 
generally they like consultants like to hire people you don't mind being stuck in an airport (laughs) for 24 hours good personality can chat can hang out because actually when you're working uh, that's a huge chunk of your time that's a huge chunk of your day Uh, sometimes you're with uh, your work family more than you are with your home family right so i love to be with people who have great attitude positive uh, problem solving um, and generally good to be around, fun, funny, because um, I, I I love my work and I want the girls and the women that I'm with at work to also love the environment too and then contribute to that. Yeah, it's so energizing talking and discussing interesting ideas with interesting people who are really engaged, right? Absolutely, and, and who have the desire to learn. Um, because as, as an individual, we need to be so, careful about who has access to our mind and our who can influence our vibe and our attitude so you want to surround yourself with people who can positively contribute to that so I think we talked about it earlier that um, flexibility hybrid work remote work COVID has kind of accelerated those trends and I think they're here to stay my personal opinion is that the encouragement of flexibility may create opportunities for women to accelerate in their careers. I think there are some organizations that are really pushing for flexible or hybrid work or even four-day weeks, and they want all of their employees to know that if you if you're taking advantage of flexibility, if you're taking advantage of a four-day week, that's not going to impact your career acceleration. And I think that mindset shift can have a real positive impact on women's careers. But I'm interested to know what you think the future of work looks like and what trends you see that you think could improve uh, gender equality in the workplace. Sure. So, This is a really interesting topic. Um, There was an APAC conference last week and I presented a paper on digital agility and its impact on the gender divide at work. So, um, cut long story short, um, we've been under lockdown for a year and a half, two years in Malaysia, right? Before the recent um, opening of the economy. And I have to say that even though I was working from home, I think I I made the most progress in my work during this time as I was reflecting. And a lot of it had to do with technology. Um, It leveled the playing field um, and I was able to be more flexible with where I spent my time because I am now the owner of all of it. All 24 yeah. hours is mine and whether I'm <laughs> up at three, uh, speaking to partners overseas or whether, you know, I, I, there was no responsibility to be at a certain place at, at a certain time. It was all in Zoom. Uh, and we were speaking earlier about empathetic leadership, the kind of leadership you need now. In the business world, empathetic leadership translates into social enterprises, right? And you see, uh, well, at least I saw over the last two years, so many social enterprises came about, uh, and also NGOs, of course. And and I'm so happy to see that women are at the uh, top at running these uh, enterprises, and they're out there to, for lack of a better, less cliched phrase, to make the world a better place. 
Um, and and they're all using tech. They're training people online. They are creating marketplaces for people online. There's people are able to buy and sell using their phone, regardless of generations. Now we we spent two years educating each other. How do you uh, receive money safely without scam? How do you pay um, without falling for any scams? And it's leveled a lot of things, knowledge, execution. Yeah, I agree. I think the social enterprises that have really scaled through the pandemic are really interesting. And I, I think because you know, they some went from being sort of smaller community-based initiatives to being able to use tech place to access a global marketplace. Um, but just to sort of start wrapping up, um, given this journey that you've gone on over the past uh, few years, and even before, I think you did your graduate program um, at the Kennedy School of Government. You know this this journey towards driving um, equality and particularly driving equality in leadership. What has that changed or has that evolved? What purpose means to you? I I would say I found my purpose in my late twenties, early thirties, um, and interestingly, I found it when I stopped being hesitant about it. And I'll explain to you why. Um, my mother is a very strong advocate in the women empowerment uh, world. Um, she's she's a very... Uh, she has created a lot of impact and a lot of change in this country. So growing up, I saw that a lot, right? But being a young, highly rebellious young girl, <laughs> I was like, I'm going to be different. So, um, but in truth, as I was growing and discovering myself, um, I realized that my mother had more impact on me than I knew. And the, the more, uh, the less I resisted embracing this fact, the faster I got to, uh, arriving at my purpose in life, uh, which was very similar to hers. Of course, in my own flavor uh, and all of that, but uh, but that realization came over many iterations, um, and I'm so pleased that my young self <laughs> at that time uh, finally decided, you know what? Uh, let's embrace this. This is what actually gets me excited. This is my reason for being, my reason for waking up. And yes, it's okay if it's the same as my mom's. Um, and this is who I am. Of course, it would be the same. I grew up all of my life listening to this. How could it not be the same? And so when I started embracing that, uh, then I started, it's, you know, if I, if I can visualize it for you, I imagine my soul stepped into my body and then I became one and started on my, on this journey. So I wasn't all over the place anymore. I knew what I wanted. And I was, once I, uh, uh, I decided I went for it, and I'm very happy with it. And and my mom is is a great role model and advisor when I need someone to bounce things yeah. off. Yeah. So once you stopped resisting this, mm-hmm. you kind of came into your full self, came into your power, personal power. Absolutely. 
And of course, everyone's got a different journey to arriving at their purpose and what is their purpose for them, right? But that was mine. And that was interesting. That just explained to me how stubborn I was as a kid. <laughs> but um, I, I'm glad I'm glad I am where I am today. And I'm glad I can share my journey with my mom because she has so much wisdom that I could learn yeah. from. So who inspires you? Um, I mean, suffice to say, <laughs> mom, mom did, did a lot there, as, as, I, as I mentioned earlier. But um, I would say in the last couple of years, not any specific person, um, but a specific demographic. Because what I realized during the whole COVID um, experience was um, the women I saw on the ground within the B40 group, um, especially if they were single mothers, they had to make sure that they had they kept their children fed, they had food on the table, that, you know, if if they still had jobs, how do you maintain mm-hmm. that? If they lost their jobs, how do you find the financial strength and also the mental strength to keep mm-hmm. going through? We speak about the double burden syndrome a woman goes through, and that's a woman with or without a yeah. partner, right? What more those who, like single moms in B40 mm-hmm. communities, their entire system... Uh, mentally, financially, um, domestically, ha- is going under intense pressure. And the strength demonstrated, the great perseverance demonstrated by those women is highly inspiring for me. Because um, we did a lot of community programs, not not necessarily stuff I put online. Um, it's just stuff I experienced on the ground, going to programs, sending food, and listening and talking to all of these women. You realize... My God, they are really yeah. made of steel. Um, you know, there's there's no way out. It's onward, upward, because it's it's literally life or death in that situation, right? So I'm highly inspired uh, by these women. I'm grateful for the lessons I learned from them. Um, and I hope that in whatever way or capacity, we all have a moral obligation to support people in this school. Yeah, I think there is no person who has more grit and resilience than a single mother and um, when you add sort of socioeconomic issues to that mix um, those women are moving mountains every day absolutely my, my respect goes out to them so what's next for you and girls for girls malaysia um so girls for girls malaysia we are prepping for a really busy 2022 um, so, sorry, let me rephrase that. We are prepping towards a very productive 2022. Yes. Yay! <laughs> uh, going to our earlier conversation. Um, we are actually expanding our team at the moment. So we're in the midst of, we, we did a recruitment drive. Now we're about to get into interviews and things like that. Um, that's for G4G. For myself, I wear several hats other than the NGO. So it also looks like it will be a very productive um, 2022 focus a little bit more, a lot more, a lot deeper in getting young women into leadership. So a a lot of work happening behind the scenes for that at the moment. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your time. Um, I've really enjoyed this chat. Um, and Likewise. Yeah, I'm very excited to see all of the new uh, initiatives that will be coming out of Girls for Girls uh, in 2022. Um yeah, and and thank you for the work you're doing because it's much needed and it's it seems that it's very effective. Thank you so much, Elena. I mean, it's 
Uh, I always tell the girls we get what we put in, so we look for girls who think that way, and if they have that mindset, they definitely get a lot out of our programs, but also the mindset change that happens after that, and them living their full potential. I, I find nothing more satisfactory than seeing come to life, yeah. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Izana Saleh. I've linked to more information about Project Girls for Girls in the show notes. They have some great workshops and seminars on topics like leadership and tips for getting back into the job market. And if you'd like to get involved, they are actually recruiting at the moment. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify. And if you really, really enjoyed this episode, then please share it. I'll be back next week. Bye.